You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Online, we have an awful lot more power, both to do good and to do harm. And the real challenge in the ethics is to figure out how we can maximize our power to do good, but also to minimize the risks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a criminal case dealing with expectations of privacy in social media posts. I look at a controversial family safety app that some say overshares location data. And later in the show, author, professor, and consultant, Dr. Susan Liotto, on technology and ethics, from social media to the sharing economy. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. All right, Ben, we have got a full show today, lots to cover. Why don't you kick things off today with your story? So I'm going on a little theme here from our last show, and this is the always enjoyable theme of stupid criminals. The lesson (laughs) here is don't post evidence of your crimes on uh, popular social media sites. Hmm, Go on. Uh, So this is a uh, case from the state of Delaware, Delaware v. Briscoe, Mm -hmm. um, alerted to me by, of course, Professor Orrin Kerr on Twitter. Mm Mm-hmm. Long-standing invitation uh, for him to come on the show. <laughs> That's right. Um, but it's sort of, you know, one of those things that I'll just hope for for generations and it, and it might never happen. But, yeah. Uh, in this case, the defendant um, was a previously convicted felon and supposedly um, either a confidential informant or a uh, post on Facebook alerted law enforcement that Mr. Briscoe was at a particular location in Wilmington and in possession of drugs and a handgun. Hmm. Um, and that's that's what's in, in dispute is whether it was the informant or whether it was Facebook slash Instagram that alerted law enforcement that this is where he was. Hmm. Law enforcement comes. Um, they spot him in his car. They do a search of that car. They discover some drugs. Um, they also find a, a separate car key on him and realize that he has a stash car where he's holding other drugs and guns. What's a stash car? That's a car where you, um, it's the car that you don't use, but where you keep all of your illegal substances slash items. I see. Uh, So it's something, you know, where you can hold your illegal guns and or drugs, 
not saying any of this from personal experience, just <laughs> from what I read about and, and watch on the crime shows. Okay. Uh, so, so not a car you're driving around in, but this is a secondary vehicle that you use basically as a storage locker. Say. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, so they were able to I, they, they were able to figure out that that separate car was on the same block, and with that key they found on the defendant, they were able to unlock that car, found a bunch of illegal weapons and drugs. Took Mr. Briscoe to the police station. They searched his body and found cocaine. Hmm. He made a hilarious quote, um, which is quoted in this case, y'all finally got me. <laughs> which <laughs> is like— He said know, to the officers, y'all finally got me. Yeah. Right. Uh, you're not really making things too difficult here, uh, Mr. <laughs> Briscoe. So okay. the nature of the dispute is how law enforcement knew where he was. Mm. Law enforcement says that a confidential informant sent over a Facebook post— um, allegedly from Mr. Briscoe, which would identify that he was sitting in a particular car at a particular time, and the informant knew where Mr. Briscoe liked to sit in this car. Briscoe claims that law enforcement were snooping in on his social media accounts because he was a past criminal. They were, you know, spying on him, trying to figure out where he was, what he was doing, so that they could catch him. Hmm. What the court says here is it doesn't really matter whether the police were snooping on Mr. Briscoe or whether it was the confidential informant. Anything you share on Facebook, you forfeited your reasonable expectation of privacy in that information, especially um, if you don't control who gets to see that post. Uh. So there was a previous case in Delaware called the Everett case that was an interesting precedent case. Uh, and that was another you know social media uh, post case. And the court in in Everett said that if somebody friends you and it turns out to be a law enforcement source, an undercover cop, if you accept that friend request and that person can see your information, you have no reasonable expectation of privacy. Hmm. You should assume that if you're um, accepting friend requests and posting things online that you're leaving it open that law enforcement is going to be able to get access to that information. Hmm. And that's the case here. Whether it was the confidential informant who saw this this Facebook post, or whether law enforcement itself were just perusing through Mr. Briscoe's Instagram and Facebook accounts. The <laughs> as fact, you do. As one does. <laughs> the fact that he posted these publicly and didn't, you know, manipulate the privacy settings to prevent people from seeing it, mm-hmm. didn't exhibit that subjective expectation of privacy, means you can't suppress this evidence. He has no Fourth Amendment uh, interest in this evidence. Mm. The lesson here is don't post evidence of your crimes on Facebook unless you've changed your privacy settings. Now, even if you do change your privacy settings, there's still going to be some dangers there. (laughs) You know, if you limit it to just your friends, some of your friends very well might be law enforcement sources. But, you know, especially if your posts are public um, or, you know, if they're just available to, to your friends, people you've accepted friend requests from, you have no reasonable expectation of privacy in that information, even if that information is particularly revealing. Um, so one thing that's interesting here is Briscoe tried to bring in Carpenter saying, well, if you are gleaning information from social media, you get a detailed picture of my life. You could track my location uh, over time, you can track what I do, who mm-hmm. I see, who I have uh, relations with, etc." What the court says here is that collection was uh, largely involuntary. You'll recall in Carpenter that had to do with cell site location information. Mm -hmm. That's collected by simply turning on your device um, because it's going to ping cell phone towers. 
that that's involuntary. What Briscoe did here is extremely voluntary. Mm. He just posted it on Facebook and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew full well uh, that a certain subset of people were going to be able to view those posts uh, and that information, and he did nothing to try to conceal it. So whether it was the informant or law enforcement who saw it is, is really immaterial. The fact that he posted it means he has no expectation of privacy uh, in that information. Hmm. And so no warrant necessary. No, there's no warrant necessary. Um, you don't have to get any prior approval from a judge. Uh, you know, at, when it comes to confidential informants, there's a large, uh, a well-accepted constitutional standard as to whether you should trust confidential informants, and it goes to the totality of the circumstances. Hmm. Um, comes from a Supreme Court case, Illinois v. Gates. Basically, if there's a reason to believe based on the history of this informant, his his or her reliability— or her relationships uh, with law enforcement, then, you know, a court can independently assess the reliability of of that informant, and that informant can be used as reliable evidence. Um, And that seems to be what the court is saying here, that they trust this confidential informant enough to believe that he was the one who identified uh, this picture on social media, and he was the one who sent it to law enforcement. Um, but again, that's that's largely immaterial because even if law enforcement were the first people who saw this just by perusing um, Mr. Briscoe's Facebook page, he still wouldn't have any expectation of privacy in that information. Hmm. When someone is making use of a confidential informant in a situation like this, uh, do they have to reveal to the judge who that informant is? Absolutely not. Huh. Um, you know, they want to protect that person's identity. Now, if there's a question on that person's reliability, there might be some sort of ex parte hearing, um, you know, without the parties involved where they will discuss the reliability of that informant. Um, But generally, they do not have to reveal that information to the court. I guess what I'm getting at is is, um, does this allow a loophole for law enforcement? I I guess law enforcement is under oath when they're testifying um, to a judge, for example, but I'm, I'm thinking of the, I'm being cynical here and I'm thinking of the possible you? loophole. Never. <laughs> I know, I know us on this show, mm-hmm. um, of, uh, of law enforcement, you know, saying that they have a confidential informant when it's really, you know, Bob down the hall uh, <laughs> or the de- Bob who's at the, the desk deputy, across, yeah. yeah, who's at the desk across from mine. You, you, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. I mean, right? you have to include some information in an affidavit about the reliability of the informant. I see. So you don't have to reveal who he is personally, but you have to attest that this informant has relevant personal knowledge. You know, you've worked with them in the past. They've identified previous criminals. Mm-hmm. You know that they have a relationship with the defendants. You have to assert all of that um, under oath on the record. Now, okay, uh, has it been abused? Uh, it's most certainly has. Probably, mm-hmm. you know, more times than you can count uh, on on you know two hands for sure. <laughs> right. Uh, but you know that's that still doesn't cut away at the process where mm. you just have to assert under oath the reliability of the confidential informant. I see. All right. Well, interesting uh, for sure. So I guess the the bottom line take home here is. Don't post evidence of your crimes online. <laughs> yeah, don't post a picture of yourself holding a gun no matter how cool you look if you're a yeah. previously convicted felon. Right. Um, same goes for drug paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you are going to do that, um, just do a better job of, of trying to conceal your Facebook posts or whichever go. social media site you're using. Right. Up yeah. your privacy settings. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, fair enough. 
All right. Well, my story uh, this week comes from uh, The Markup. Uh, this is uh, an article written by John Keegan and Alfred Nung, um, and it's titled The Popular Family Safety App Life360 is Selling Precise Location Data on Its Tens of Millions of Users. So the upshot of this is there is an app called Life360, and uh, this is an app that sells itself by saying that it is for family safety. So, for example, let's say you have a couple of kids, which you and I both have a couple of kids. We sure do. And uh, you would feel better knowing where those kids are and what they're up to. So you can have your kids install this app, and it will use the GPS to let you know where they are. It that both sounds good, but also should raise alarm bells as soon as you hear it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, it has some features, for example, like uh, crash detection. So if your kid is in a car accident, it will alert you immediately that um, a high G-force event has happened, mm. for example, right? Now, uh, just stepping aside here for a second, there's a part of me that wonders— if this is at all helpful, like, what are you going to do? You know, you get a, a notice like this, I guess you could be the first to call 911. I I, I guess, you Yeah, know, I mean, if is, your kid's is, driving, it, you know, presumably they are, I mean, I guess they could be seriously injured, but presumably yeah. they understand how to call 911 from their yeah. cell phone. Yeah. I, I guess know. my point is that I wonder, there's a part of me that wonders if apps like this, all they do is increase people's anxiety. To be able, probably, you know, yes. like, is there an ignorance is bliss element here, especially when you're talking about teenage kids, for example? Yeah, now you have experience <laughs> with this. My kids are younger, but yeah. I would guess that sometimes you'd rather just not know where your kids are. Yes, tell them don't, you know, don't do drugs, don't do anything illegal, get right. home safely. Um, but otherwise, you know, yeah. I, I'd rather just not know. Yeah, and this is actually an area where my spouse and I don't always see eye to eye on. She she wants to know where they are all the time, and I'm like, eh, you know, <laughs> come home when the streetlights come on. You yeah, know, like, exactly. I, I, I'm more free range than she is, but, you know, it's just— they were just different in that way. Right. Um, now, uh, you know, there are other versions of this. For example, um, Apple has a version built into their iOS uh, environment, their, their, their operating system there, where um, you can opt in to location data sharing for families and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Um, but what is, what, it is, what is at issue here is that Life360 is selling this location data to a lot of different uh, location data brokers. Uh, there's a company called Cubic and uh, Xmode, um, which buy and sell this sort of information. Uh, and this information, once it's out there on the market, it's out there on the market yep. and all sorts of different uh, interests <laughs> can, can sure. vacuum up this data uh, and buy it. And it's pretty darn revealing data, I mean, if you think about it. When we're talking about location data, we've said this a million times, but that can really reveal some personal, private relationships, um, you know, things that your kids are doing that you would not want the broader world to know about. Right. Um, I understand why it's profitable, but this is also information that's potentially very personal. Yeah, well, speaking of profitable, this article points out that – the Life360 folks, in 2020, they made $16 million, which is uh, nearly 20% of their revenue, from selling this location data. Hey, some they got to eat, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it, I think that really 
indicates how valuable this is. I mean, 20, 20% of your revenue, that's a lot. That That's a huge part of how you're making the company work, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what they would say, and I agree with them, is we want to provide this useful application to you for free. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could charge user fees. Um, this could be a paid application. Um, you know, we could give you a free version, but you'd have to pay for various add-ons or whatever. Right. Um, we're going to make it free, That, but that means, you know, we need a way to make money. So you can do that in a number of ways. One way is just through advertising, mm-hmm. which is fine, um, but it can also be, it can make your apps less user-friendly if ads are popping up all the time, uh, especially, you know, when you're trying to monitor your kids, if you have to X out of a bunch of screens. Right. Yeah. <laughs> About, you know, Bud Light's new Christmas beer. Uh, But the other way they can make money is selling your data. Um, The data itself is extremely valuable. Um, When we're talking about data brokers, they can sell it to businesses who can micro-target, you know, individuals and and families for advertising. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as, you know, we've, we've said, there's nothing more valuable than that, getting access to that data. So I think what the company would say, and they have this hilarious, um, we can neither confirm nor deny this report quote, <laughs> is they have a business model where in order to keep our application free uh, to our users, we have to, you know, we have to make money somehow. Right. And one of the ways we're going to make money, 20% of our revenue, is through selling this data. Um, they're insisting that it stays anonymized. We know that that's not always the case. Yep. Um, you know, I just wonder, I think people should be fully aware that their data is being sold in this way, and then they can make the decision as to whether it's worth it, right? right. The problem is that this is all very concealed from the user. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's part of the EULA, it's part of the terms and services. Um, they found another cyber expert besides us to uh, in this article who is uh, willing to tell them that nobody actually reads uh, the terms and services. Right. People didn't see it. Uh, so, you know, you're not providing any type of meaningful consent here. Yeah. Well, and the folks at Life360 uh, remind us that there is an option to opt out in the app, which, of course, to, in my opinion, is the opposite of what should happen. It should be opt-in. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but, of course, well, that's, ne- that's that's my fantasy. That's never going to happen. Uh, not without – that's never going to happen without any regulation. Right, right. And I guess that points to the bigger issue here, which is that uh, – you know, this article points out that some of the usual suspects, uh, Senator Wyden, for example, have their eye on this sort of thing. Um, and I wonder, could we see regulation, could we and should we see regulation that makes these sort of uh, location sharing agreements opt-in only? I mean, the could and the should, I think, are very separate questions. Yeah. Um, I think it should, and I think there are advocates on both sides of the political aisle um, like Senator Wyden and a lot of advocates on the Republican conservative side who would say we need to protect people's interest in this information. Mm-hmm. Um, they th- These types of applications should not be able to sell your data or at the very, late, uh, at the very least, um, you should have to opt in for them to do so. Maybe there's a very clear warning when you download the application that says we want permission to sell your data to these data brokers. Right. Um, you know, pr- please press OK. You have the option of opting out. Something like that where the consumer has meaningful choice. That's something that Congress could do. They could regulate it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are reasons that I think it it won't happen in the near future. Largely, you know, just Congress never really 
does anything. That seems to be a <laughs> prominent theme of when we ask, is Congress going to do something? The easy answer is always probably not. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, not to be cynical. I guess we both got to be cynical on this episode, <laughs> but there is a lot of money involved here. Right. Um, and these applications can go to members of Congress and say, fine, you can regulate us like this, but then we're going to have to charge um, for the use of our applications. Mm-hmm. And the general public's not going to be happy about that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to want to pay $3 a month for uh, this application when they've been using it for free. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. And, but also I think it brings up the point that um, privacy should not be a line between the haves and the have-nots. In other words, you know, if you there, – there's an argument to be made that uh, if you pay your $3 a month or your $10 a month or your $100 a month, whatever it is, uh, that that would be one way to get out of having your information tracked. Right. But the other side of that argument is you shouldn't have to be a person of means – Absolutely. To enjoy privacy. Absolutely. Um, that's always something that concerns me is the only way that we can have digital privacy is to have money, mm-hmm. to pay our way out of these types of digital tracking tools. And I think that's fundamentally unfair and goes against our values. Privacy should not be considered a commodity. Um, it is, as of today, uh, implicitly a, a constitutional right, the right of privacy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I think it's it's more important than something that people should just be able to buy their way out of. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really good that articles come out about this. Um, you know, it's always going to raise the ire of people like Senator Wyden, but just for the general public to understand that this is what's happening on these applications. Right. Um, when you have free applications that track you across various locations, there is no free lunch. Um, there's a reason it's free. It probably has to do with the fact that they are selling your data to data brokers. Mm-hmm. This uh, article actually has a helpful little step-by-step guide for where to turn off selling your personal information. Yeah, complete so. <laughs> with, with pictures, which right. is good for me. I generally need to see it until— Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, we will have a link to this article uh, in the show notes. Uh, definitely worth a read and uh, sharing with your friends, families, and loved ones just to make sure that they're aware of what is going on here. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If you have a topic you would like for us to cover here on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Susan Liotto. She is uh, a leading international expert on ethics. She is the author of the book, The Power of Ethics. 
and she is the founder of the Ethics Incubator. Uh, she teaches at Stanford University. A uh, really interesting conversation here. Here's my uh, conversation with Susan Leoto. So the first thing is that anything we think about with ethics, when technology comes into the mix, the risks are turbocharged. So online, that could be anything from uh, what I talk about in the book is contagion of unethical behavior. So that could be the spread of fake news or falsity more generally. It could be the uh, escalation and contagion of bullying and harassment, and even things like an epidemic of perfectionism. But one of the key things is that online, we have an awful lot more power, both to do good and to do harm. And the real challenge in the ethics is to figure out how we can maximize our power to do good, you know, to, to grant access to education, to grant access to healthcare information, to run classes online, to do research and beyond, um, but also to minimize the risks. Uh, and those risks are, are far and wide from things that end up creating mental health disorders to actually even physical violence that goes from the online world into the real world, as we've seen in the past couple of years. Historically, where have the guardrails come from when it comes to societies and how they approach ethics? So there are a number of different places, depending on how far back in history one wants to go. I'll steer clear of religion, but clearly for some people, that is a source of what I call in the book guiding principles uh, Mm. and a source of, you know, loosely described as right and wrong. Then there's the law. And in many cases, the law has been an effective guardrail, but the law is always going to lag behind reality. It takes a while to develop policy. It takes a while to get laws passed. And rightfully so, we should be thoughtful about regulation. But where we are now is that the gap between the reality, the technologically turbocharged reality that you're referring to in which we live, and the efficacy or even existence of laws is wider and wider every day. So the law is ineffective in most cases in governing uh, technology, in putting up those guardrails that you're referring to. So now where do we say, where do we get the guardrails? Well, we certainly need to be asking the companies who control the innovations to put guardrails in place. That's a bit uh, fox in the hen house, right? I mean, that's a bit, uh, you know, because there will always be in their eyes a question of, guardrails versus growth and profit, to give you two words that we heard with Uber, we hear with Facebook, and we hear with many other technology companies, big and small. But, you know, increasingly, I'm focusing on what I'm calling democratizing ethics, which means making ethical decision-making and ethical power available to people from all walks of life, whether or not we have formal education, whether or not we have expertise in technology. And at the end of the day, if we're not reading the fake news, it doesn't have an audience. If we're not spreading the bullying, if we're not focused ourselves on the photoshopped or whatever the most recent version, the face-tuned Instagram photos, then we're not spreading some notion that perfectionism can exist and the mental health epidemics that go along with it. So increasingly, we need to look at our own participation as well in terms of guardrails. When I think of, you know, folks who are coming up studying things like like, uh, cybersecurity or computer science and and those sorts of things, I think it's few and far between those who are required to take courses in ethics. In your view, I mean, is is that a shortcoming? Is that something we do at our own peril? Very much something we do at our own peril. 
Now, at places like Stanford and MIT and Harvard, there is a big push to make sure that the computer scientists are getting trained in ethics, or at least to some extent, the ethics are getting embedded in the curriculum in different ways. At Stanford, we have something called an ethical reasoning requirement that all undergraduates need to take, and that can be anything from one of my classes to perhaps a class that is more, uh, you know, philosophy or or um, some religious class that has a great deal of ethical reasoning. So I definitely think that we need to embed the ethics in the curriculum, but not just for computer scientists. We need everybody. We need the humanists. We need the social scientists. We need the natural scientists to understand that all of the questions that we're facing today in society, whether or not we work in those domains, have a critical ethical dimension. And as citizens, we all need to be participating. You know, I, I I fear that this question may come across as a little snarky, but I, I I do mean it in good faith. And I guess what I'm wondering is, has there ever been a generation that didn't feel as though, compared to the generation before them, they were in some sort of moral decline? That's a really interesting question. Um, and I don't take it as snarky because I think the stakes of the generation of today's world, whether it's the generation that's coming through the university education that you're describing, or those of us who went through that several generations ago, I think we face unprecedented challenge. And we face unprecedented potential for the spreading of moral decline through technology. So it may well be that each generation had its moral crises, its scandals, uh, its sense that it was somehow failing, or its recognition, rather reckoning with the past, could be about slavery, could be about civil rights, could be about various aspects of human rights or even corporate behavior. You know, we've certainly seen over the past 20 years or so words like governance, accountability, and ultimately ethics sort of took a while to come onto the horizon. But I would say that the distinguishing uh, feature of today's world, and in particular the upcoming generation, is that technology turbocharges the decline of ethics. Can we touch on the issue of fake news and and uh, and how ethics comes into that? I mean, it, it I find it very discouraging that um, you know we see. I guess what I would describe as as willful ignorance. You know, you or you find folks who you know are spreading misinformation for their own purposes, for their own profit, for their own uh, you know whatever philosophical philosophical reasons. And it's hard to not feel discouraged when you see that and the growth of that day by day. So I'm very sympathetic to your sense that uh, it's hard not to feel discouraged or worse. But let me, let me take this at, at its broadest level. In my view, there's no such thing as ethics without truth. And if we walk through why that is, I provide in the book a, a four-part framework. It's four words that pretty much anybody who reads the first chapter will have mastered uh, in about 45 minutes. But if we look at principles that we're all accustomed to, say integrity or accountability or honesty or responsibility, they all hinge on truth. In addition, when we make decisions, we need information. Well, it's very straightforward. Garbage in means garbage out. We can't make ethical decisions without truthful information. We can't make ethical decisions without a truthful vision of who the stakeholders are that could be affected by our decision or who could affect our decision. And finally, we have no visibility about the potential consequences, the risks we may be triggering or the opportunities we may be either seizing or missing out on 
unless we have um, truth and we commit to looking at, to the world as it is. I think this question of fake news is particularly dangerous today, not only because of the technology, but as you are quite rightly alluding to, a willingness to weaponize it, a willingness to use it at best to our own advantage in certain cases, and in other cases to use it to really nefarious ends. So it is particularly dangerous today. It's not just little white lies. It's not just somebody having an affair and hiding it. It is fundamental truths about our society, whether it's the science behind the COVID vaccine or whether it's various other aspects about election-related information that is, you know, is truly detrimental um, to, the, to the ethical fabric of society. Are, are there examples from history where societies have, have gone off the rails when it comes to ethics and, and been able to right themselves? I think, first of all, as a general matter, I think ethical resilience, as you put it, being able to right ourselves is very key. But to link that back to your question about fake news, in order to right ourselves, whether it's individually, organizationally, or as a society, we need to be able to tell the truth and the whole truth. And then we need to take responsibility for that truth and commit to a plan to make sure that all the wrongdoing doesn't happen again. I can't think right now of a particular moment that I would say, let's look to that moment. Uh, They fixed it. They did the full three steps of telling the truth, taking responsibility, making a plan and sort of executing it. What I would say about today is that, again, technology makes it much more dangerous because once things are out there, you never know where they're going to end up. So if somebody tells a lie today, it might end up in the, you know, on the screens of millions of people, if not more. Whereas, you know, in the era of Jane Austen, somebody might tell a lie in, in a salon and it's going to end up at worst sort of around the village. So we're in, you know, particularly challenging times as far as the truth. But there's also something very fundamental here about the way individual citizens engage. And that is, and and I'd, I'd be curious what you think of this. We seem to be in an era where people think, and in particular the younger generation, that we can create the truth we want, that we can decide because we can program our world. We can decide what music we want to listen to. We can decide what TV shows we want to listen to just by, you know, pushing a button on our cell phone or on our iPad. And we can control, we have this false sense that we can actually control the world and that somehow the world owes us to be the way we want it to be. Well, that's just not the way the world works. And the biggest example of that is climate change. Nature, Mm. you know, nature doesn't care what we think. Nature doesn't care about our fake news. Nature is going to do its own thing. Um, And there's this wonderful ad in the UK on television, this very powerful, visually powerful ad that says, um, man needs nature. Nature doesn't need man. It probably should have said human, but in any event, um, uh, in any event, I mean, you get my point, which is that, you know, we, we, we have a generation for whom, you know, not just laptops, but mobile phones, um, tablets are almost an appendage. And it's as if they, you know, they feel that they can just decide that they want the world to be a certain way and the world owes them to, to be such. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really interesting point. And I, I wonder, you know, it's, it's I, I guess at, at the danger of falling into, you know, old man yelling at clouds right. uh, zone, um, you know, I, I'll see, um, you know, kids waiting for their friends to show up at a movie theater or something and seemingly unable to simply stand there and wait. You know, they have to be on their mobile devices. 
And I try to remind myself that, you know, just because something is different, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's better or worse. It may just be different. But I guess I worry about the algorithmic amplification of things and the ability for those algorithms to place people inside of bubbles for the algorithms to sense that, oh, when when I put this in front of you, you engage with it, and so I'm going to put more in front of you. We often talk about, you know, on this show, like, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. And I think that particularly for the, the social media giants, uh, that's a trap they've fallen into, this notion of, you know, move fast and break things. Well, you know, if if the only way I can run a, my successful factory is to pollute the river that runs next to the factory, well, maybe I shouldn't be running that factory. And I can't help wondering if that's where we are um, with some of the, the social media giants today. Well, there are a couple of really important things in what you've just said. And if I may, I'd like to start with the example of the children waiting for a friend at the movie theater. Yeah. That word wait is mission critical for ethics. And the number of times I suggest to people, take a breath, press pause, think, let's go through what, who are the stakeholders here? What are the actual and potential consequences, not just in the short term, but in the medium and long term? And that doesn't mean put roadblocks up against innovation. Sometimes it means be careful that we're not too conservative. Be careful that we think about the fact that we may not need an innovation in the U.S., say driverless cars, but in certain developing countries, if we don't get driverless cars, the astonishing rates of road deaths will continue because they don't have safe roads, because they don't have medical care, because they don't enforce rule of law like speed limits. So this idea of pressing pause and patience is something that the technology seems to be taking away from just basic growing up, to use your, your example of children in movie theaters. And then it becomes mm. a habit for all of us. And things have to be faster and faster. We no longer wait for a fax to come. We expect it to come you know, instantaneously by text or email or some, other, or some other communications channel. With respect to the social media companies, I couldn't agree more. I think that they are a particular set of ethics, opportunities, and risks. And when we look at the astonishing statistics of teenage suicides, when we look at the epidemic of perfectionism, things like young girls creating selfies, sharing them on social media, and then going to plastic surgeons and telling the plastic surgeon to make them look like their selfie or make them look like their friend's selfie, when we see the kind of bullying and harassment or manipulation of voting, uh, manipulation of democracy... That is a, a whole other level beyond even many of the other technology companies. And uh, I couldn't agree more with you that we have moved too fast. We have broken too many things. And even if we're looking at us as, as a cost-benefit analysis, we are not in the right place on that, in particular with social media. You know, as we wrap up our, our time together, I mean, do you have any advice for those of us who want to try to contribute to making this situation better, what, what's the best use of our, our time, our talents, our, our treasures to, to try to move the needle in the right direction? So some of this is going to sound very basic, and it's a wonderful question in particular because, as I said earlier, my personal mission and the way that all of my different areas of ethics work comes together is democratizing ethics. It's saying that as citizens, as individuals, whether or not we're citizens, we have tremendous power. The first point is to be careful with our own decision-making. 
That can be decision-making around how we use social media, but it also can be decision-making around family and friends. Are we open-minded about having friends whose political views differ, you know, to the extreme from our own? Are we, or are we creating our own bubbles? A whole wide variety of questions that I'm actually going to be exploring in a new book. Then how do we use technology? You know, are we really thinking about the impact of using Spotify for free on the artists if we can afford not to use it for free? Uh, how much time do we spend on social media and what do we use it for? Are we using it for very select reasons? Third, very fundamental things about the way we participate in society, like voting. The ethics of our leaders come down to how much the citizens are going to vote for ethically inclined leaders and hold them to account. And then finally, just in the workplace, for example, being mindful that ethics can become a habit. Almost every decision we make, we can, uh, without much thinking about it, integrate ethics with, uh, with just a little bit of, of training. And um, it's some of the work that I lay out in the book, but it's um, work that I do with organizations generally. And it just becomes a habit where at least we're sort of thinking as we're doing. And from time to time, we're saying to ourselves, wow, I really need to press pause. And then I guess finally, just commit to truth. Commit to truth in you know what products you're going to use, the people you're going to engage with, how you're going to be part using social media, etc. All right, Ben, what do you think? I really liked how she talked about democratizing ethics. That this isn't something that should be handed down by some grand ethics board in the ivory towers of academic institutions mm. or big tech companies, um, that this is something that we should, you know, all have a say in, in um, digital ethics. And, uh, you know, I think democratization of, of anything is, um, at least on first glance, always a good idea. And mm -hmm. for something as serious as, as ethics, it was just interesting to hear her say that. And it's something I certainly agree with. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, again, our thanks to uh, Dr. Susan Liotto for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That 
is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>